Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is uh, Friday, January 20th, 2017. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have a full crew today. Uh, Doug, Erica, Tiffany, Gabby, and Elliot. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hello there. Hi. <laughs> awesome. I think it's the first time we've all been together for, uh, for a number of weeks. Yeah. It's a very special day. <laughs> Yeah. Very special day for the health and wellness show. <laughs> so today we are going to talk about uh, connecting the dots, traveling through 2017, uh, just talking about what is uh, coming in 2017. We're going to talk about some current things and uh, also um, just kind of freely speculate about a couple of things as well as far as kind of what the year has in store for us. Uh, but we have some interesting topics that have been in the news recently that uh, that we wanted to discuss and um, just kind of cover a broad range of topics. Uh, aerotoxic syndrome, which if you have not heard of, is uh, is kind of uh, an interesting phenomena. And um, if you happen to fly a lot, you may want to uh, to just tune out and read about this later. <laughs> so it, it's uh, it's a little daunting uh but it's definitely an interesting topic um and then we can talk about some high-tech stuff uh health apps this like uh explosion of of high-tech health apps which people are using to monitor their health and uh you know what's the story with that uh and then uh the vaccine issue our our ever-present uh issue about vaccines, which uh, I noticed has not gotten much play uh, recently, at least in like the um, the mainstream or even like the, uh, the alt media, so to speak. Of course, there have been other things going on, um, but it's I'm wondering if we're going to see another resurgence of uh, the vaccine debate that usually comes up, I think, around the vaccine season. Uh, but there's some information that has come out. Uh, spearheaded by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, which we're going to discuss. So I guess let's uh, let's dive right into it. First of all, uh, aerotoxic syndrome. Uh, yes. Yeah. What do you got, Gabby? I have a testimonial that I wanted to read. Uh, this person, let's call him John. John <laughs> wrote to me uh 2014, giving feedback to one of the ketogenic articles we published on SOT as a SOT focus. And uh, he says, whoa, nice article on the ketogenic diet. Here's something you may wish to sink your teeth into and maybe even be a help. In the late 2010 and early 2011, I inhaled fumes containing organophosphates through oil leaks in an engine. I have suffered incredible pain, nerve disorders, demyelination of the brain, central nervous system, and peripheral nervous system, suffered with vision, death in one ear, and IBS-like symptoms. In 2013, through research, I increased my cholesterol intake substantially through coconut oil and organic butter. In three weeks, a substantial amount of nerve issues went away. However, I am still not well. My ear is still deaf. I read and listened to Dr. Dominic D'Agostino from uh, the University of Florida, I think, Ketogenic Genius, and started reading up on it. Hmm. I started it in earnest a few days ago as I experiment. I am doing an undairy version. 
Um, specialist, uh, one specialist in organophosphate suggested the dairy ear from healing. She didn't know why exactly. And, uh, okay, he basically shares a little bit of more details. He basically says that his type of injury is mostly neurological. And, uh, and he was asking me to check out this, uh, aerotoxic pilot syndrome. He was still employed by the airline. Um, I, I, back then in 2014, he was still employed by the airline that hurt him. And, um, and they were very strict, you know, uh, the restrictions in social media and what, we, and what he could share, you know, publicly and not. They were very strict about that. He said that I could not use his real name or the airline's name, but he was telling me that I'm reading uh, literally. However, this being a global issue, all airlines are affected. Yes, every single one. It is a design fault in aircraft implemented in the early 1960s and never rectified. So he said that a lot of people are affected by this syndrome, and uh, that's pretty much, you know, what he said. It's pretty much a neurological one. So this is a testimonial from a real pilot related mm. to SOT, basically. Wow. So basically, every a, airplane except for the except for the uh, what is it, the Boeing Dreamliner. Uh, it's a design flaw where you have to pump air into the airplane cabin because the air is too thin, the oxygen is too thin at certain heights. So they use this compressed supply of air or bleed air from the plane's engines and they circulate that air through the plane. And it's less expensive, that's why they did it, but it can cause uh, fume events or just toxic air because the valves that keep the oil in place, they leak over time in that oil, which is uh, filled with all kinds of organophosphates or uh, TCPs that cause neurological problems, gets into the air supply and it makes people sick. And the cab, the uh, airline cabins, uh, the cockpit, they get most of that bad air. Mm-hmm. Like a hundred percent contaminate, polluted, mm-hmm. right there where the pilots are. So that's very reassuring, you know, to know that you're flying, you know, <laughs> well, a pilot getting exposed to toxic fumes like nerve gas, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it never used yep. to be like that, though, did it? Um, because the the I think it was before the 1960s they used to use mechanical pumps. Um, mm-hmm. to basically filter out the air. And so um, the the air that was coming into the plane was a lot cleaner. It was it was really like mm. pure air, whereas um, whereas they, they found out that it would be cheaper to, to use this different type of technology, which basically, as, as Tiff said, uh, takes the air in almost like through the engine, but then it gets exposed to all of these different sort of heavy metals and TCPs and, and, and the oil and everything like that. And so um, it, it, it kind of seems like it was a it was a maneuver to um, to save some money mm-hmm. on the on the air, airlines mm-hmm. um, behalf. But none of the airliners will admit that this is a problem, even though their pilots are getting sick. And then when you think about it, like how many of these events where things have gone wrong up in the air is because of the pilots 
getting sick while they're flying. I mean, there's been talks, um, like certain 60-minute shows out of Australia. One pilot was talking about how he got so sick up in the air, he was basically losing consciousness on and off. Mm. Jesus. It's really crazy, too, because, you know, they, they, they recognize there's such a thing as a fume event. And that's when it's, like, so bad that you can actually see kind of smoke in the air and, like, you can smell really bad smells and stuff. But it's apparently all the time you're getting exposed to some of this stuff. It might only be just, like, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it can lead to all kinds of problems like chronic, chronic fatigue, respiratory difficulties, vision problems, cognitive disorders, um, persistent neurological damage. It's pretty crazy. If you think about it, like, imagine, like, you know, with your car, while your car is running and the engine's going and the air that's kind of in under the hood there, that's what you're breathing. Like, you know... (laughs) Yeah, even if you can't see it or smell it, like you said, Doug, it's pretty bad and none of these airplanes have sensors. And uh, a lot of the critics or the people who are suffering from this aerotoxic syndrome said if they actually did have sensors on the planes, they would always be going off. (laughs) And actually... They have done blood tests, you know, to measure like a type of organophosphate that is very specific for these type of pollution, cockpit pollution, and all pilots will come up high on it. Mm-hmm. And another weird thing about this is like even the oxygen masks that drop down in case of an emergency, even those use the air from the bleed air from the engine. So you're, <laughs> you think you're being safe because you're getting some fresh supply of air, but it's really not fresh air. <laughs> Apparently, only flight attendants get pure oxygen because mm-hmm. they have to be, you know, full, have full consciousness to help the rest of the people. But yes, everybody else, huh? Well, it makes me think of an article we talked about in a previous show about how the government was advising spraying pesticides on passengers for international flights. Yeah. Like if it if it wasn't almost just like a a cover up, so to speak. So so they knew this aerotoxic syndrome was going on, and they're like, "Well, we're just going to start spraying pesticides because it is an organophosphate." And then people will be outraged about that, but they won't really know the deeper issue. Or let's work up people on not smoking on airplanes because that is so impure, but let's just make the hell out of them with toxic nerve gas. Well, well, funny enough, when when people used to smoke on airplanes, um, they had to, um, for the benefit of the other passengers who weren't smokers, they had to sort of continually renew the air supply every two minutes or something so that the the plane wouldn't get too smoky. Whereas um, apparently when smoking got got banned on on flights then they stopped doing that and they they gradually decreased the frequency of, of how many times they um they changed the air and apparently now it's like i i think i remember it every 26 minutes um they change that mm-hmm. air um so yeah they should go back to allowing smoking on planes <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think I was exposed to a fume event on my most recent airplane trip. Oh. Yeah, as we were taking off and just reaching altitudes, just this really funky chemical smell I could smell. It only lasted for a couple of minutes and then I fell asleep, but I probably passed out <laughs> from the fume. 
Probably joking there, that's, yeah, but, that's what I was yeah. going to ask. You know, I think a lot of people get the flu after traveling, and sometimes it is the flu. But flu-like symptoms is also another sign of this aerotoxic pilot syndrome. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it makes you wonder, all this jet lag, you know, that people get exactly. when they travel. Yeah. It could be the aerotoxic pilot syndrome and not necessarily that, you know, change your time zone. Yeah. Sure. Well, flu-like no, I think that's definitely so a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people well, recommend uh, if you're going to travel, if you travel a lot, to carry an, uh, a mask, a face mask that has activated charcoal lining, and it kind of adsorbs some of the TCP molecules. Mm. But maybe people will think that you're contaminated or sick, and they might try and yeah, it, quarantine you. <laughs> Terrorists. <laughs> exactly. I feel like that would, like, how touchy people are in airports, especially wearing a mask would land mm-hmm. you in a TSA holding cell pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But you do see it. You do see it with, I, I see it particularly amongst Japanese that, mm-hmm. that wear them a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe they know something yeah. you don't. Yeah. I'm interested in, uh, Gabby, what your, uh, the, the guy who wrote you, um, mm-hmm what he said about uh, how he was able to at least partially treat his symptoms by increasing his cholesterol. Mm-hmm. That was very interesting. That is, that's what I wanted to highlight. Like if there is a listener or somebody knows somebody with aerotoxic pilot syndrome, the ketogenic diet or at least raising your intake of animal fat seems like a very good option because he said mm. that a lot of his neurological syndrome got better. You know, he still was deaf in one ear, but a lot of other symptoms that were like multiple sclerosis type symptoms that got mm-hmm. better. I'm Which makes sense they, if it's, yeah. I mean, if they're, if they're one of the symptoms, it's demyelination. The yeah. myelin sheath, I mean, that's cholesterol right there. So it, it makes sense that, that increasing your cholesterol would actually be helpful. I think mm. a combination of good animal fats and uh, maybe some lugol, if used responsibly, mm. could help with that you know, neurological mm. syndrome. And then the way we're firing for it, saunas. He was consulting a very you know, popular doctor, um, Sarah Myhill. She's author of, or she's an advocate of detoxing with a foreign infrared sauna, using supplements, and using the mm. ketogenic diet to increase mitochondrial function. And uh, yes, I hope, um, never heard back of him again, but I hope he got a hold of his, of his syndrome, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incidentally, if anybody wants more information on this, you can go to, uh, there's a, uh, I believe it's a non-profit um, uh, website called aerotoxic.org, and they do a really good job of kind of keeping all the news up to date, and um, they're covering, um, there's been a, a date set for a trial um, in April of 2017. Um, I don't know the details of that, but there's some uh, kind of landmark trial um, where uh, presumably people who have been suffering from aerotoxic syndrome are suing the airlines maybe. There's another news one about a KLM stewardess recently who's uh, gone to court as well because she suffers from uh, this aerotoxic syndrome. So if you are looking for more info on it or to just to get up to date on it, it's a good website. 
Yeah, I put the link in the chat of the article. Ah. And it's got the aerotoxic organization there. Detoxifying should really work because even um, those workers from the Gulf oil spill, you know, back mm. in a few, you know, years ago, some really got very severe neurological syndromes. And I know at least of a couple who went to Dr. Ria in Texas uh, Medical Center who does uh, far infrared saunas, IV infusions of vitamin C, alpha lipoic acid, and so forth. And he, that man specifically, he recovered. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's good news for people afflicted with toxicity issues of this sort. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess connecting to another one of our, our topics here, if, uh, you know, if, if having your travel hampered is, uh, <laughs> uh, which it can be, um, there are, there are ways to deal with that now with, uh, technology. Of course, what I think is interesting about this is, um, so <clears throat> everybody's familiar with, or at least I think a lot of people are familiar with, like the health apps that are available, um, more widely, I think, on uh, on Apple devices uh, than Android, but they are on Android as well. Like Fitbit um, or something like that? Yeah. And now the, the new Apple uh, iPhones have a built-in health app where <clears throat> the phone itself will monitor your sleep cycles and stuff. And basically what all it does is uh, sense uh, its own movement. So, you know, if it's, if it's idle for a long time, uh, during the nighttime hours and then it moves, it assumes that you moved it. And so then it records that as a disturbance in your sleep. So I think it's still technologically, it's, it's, um, it's really not that cool, but it's, uh, <clears throat> there's, you know, there more, I guess, accurate, uh, readings are taken by the Fitbits because people will actually wear those watches and it can, it can sense how much they stir. Uh, you know, and how, uh, how, how often and how much, mm-hmm. um, and then it can also sense blood pressure and things like that as well. Um, but there is a, there's a proposal now, one of our articles that we were looking at, uh, which a slight, the title, I think may be slightly misleading <clears throat> new computer smartphone app would monitor mental health through social media. There's not actually this app doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Um, what it is is a uh, 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 professor uh, Jibo Lu uh, Luo, I guess I'm not sure how you pronounce that, uh, at the American Association for Artificial Intelligence conference in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, this computer science professor proposed a program which would analyze uh, your images from social media and what you write, and would basically use facial recognition of of you know, of your, your face in order to map different expressions to different uh, emotions and, and then also use language recognition to map what you're writing uh, to, to the same emotions. Um, and then that they would, uh, they would propose creating a, a, a software around this that would allow you to monitor your mental health. Um, and so as kind of a, a techie person myself, I find this interesting. However, <laughs> I think at the same time, it's, uh, it's, it's really, um, I guess like pedantic in a way it's, it's like, you know, if you need 
uh, an AI to monitor your mental health through photos of yourself and what you're writing, uh, then then we truly are lost. You know, <laughs> somehow <laughs> <you>, Orwellian <laughs> false <yeah>. short. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm being melodramatic here. If you can't, at the very least, be like, I have felt bummed out for the last couple of days. Like that's <laughs> that's the base. <laughs> the base minimum of self-awareness that you need to figure that out. Um, <laughs> well, if you uh, even need a smartphone app to tell you how well you slept, I mean, you can figure that out when you wake up in the morning and you realize that you do or you do not feel tired. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, or what happens if you don't pay your bill? <laughs> you get shut down? <laughs> Yeah. With, with the with the with the whole sleeping thing, like I actually know a few people who who do this, but I think it's just so stupid. Because, and it, it really reflects like a lack of understanding of sleep and how you get to sleep. Like if you've got like Wi-Fi or el- electromagnetic frequencies tied into like your head and all over your body when you go to sleep, you've got this technology right next to you when you go to sleep. That is gonna. Um, 100% affect the way that you sleep. Yeah. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. You cannot sleep right. well if you're tied up to, like, some EMF technology. So, I mean, like, how can they even determine how well someone sleeps if they tie them up to one of these things? You know, it's so stupid. <laughs> That's when you take Ambien, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the more disturbing elements of this, too, is that... Um, I think it was a different app they were talking about in a different article called the IC, like mm-hmm. I-S-E-E. And yeah. um, it's, again, I think it's one that isn't isn't actually released yet, but they're currently doing studies with it. And its, uh, its purpose is to kind of um, to monitor uh, university students um, who, because at, at this point, university students have kind of record levels of depression. So they're actually monitoring them to kind of see how their moods are and it does kind of similar things. I mean, it looks, it, I think it uses the camera system to kind of look at um, uh, head movements and um, uh, skin uh, color. And I, I don't know if it can actually measure temperature or not, but uh, it uh, it does all these things to kind of determine whether or not um, a student is um, depressed. But the disturbing part of it is, I mean, it'd be one thing if you had this app and it was kind of telling you, oh, by the way, I think you're depressed. Why don't you call your friends or something like that? <laughs> but this, what it's actually doing or, or what it's proposed to be doing is actually sending that information then to a doctor or your doctor mm-hmm. or your insurance company or something like that. I mean, talk about an invasion of privacy. <laughs> like, are we not allowed to have a bad mood anymore? And it's monitoring. Be alerted. It's monitoring your use of texting and uh, accessing the web. And so the movements too. Yeah, right so right if you're right. more depressed, apparently you tend to text more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or use your phone more. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, it uses the GPS to monitor where you are. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, doctor, this patient of yours hasn't left the house today. Better up their medication. Well, well, Doug, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to hide, right? <laughs> if you're not leaving your house, yeah. you're not okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, not only does this app send information to your doctor or your therapist, it'll actually initiate some therapy for you, even if you don't ask for it. I guess if it detects that you're depressed, it might ask you a question. I don't know what it's going to do, but it's creepy nonetheless, and anybody who uses it 
Woe be unto them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. I wonder how long it'll be before um, insurance companies actually gain access to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we'll look at, uh, oh, your, your premiums are going up because you're depressed. It's like, I'm not depressed. I work from home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we see you're smoking and you said you weren't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Based on your current activity, we think you need a drug, an antipsychotic. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to get there, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that's actually that silly of an idea. I mean, I I think it's silly, but I don't think it's uh, uh, impossible that that would happen, is what I'm trying to say. Because there's already, like for cars, um, there are uh, devices that will be mounted into a car to monitor your driving patterns and report Mm -hmm. that data back to your insurance company. And you can get these installed in order to receive a lower rate. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're then pre- or a higher rate safe driver or a higher rate of <laughs> yeah. well they already have that for people who've been charged with a DUI driving under the influence they have these mm-hmm. gadgets that they put into the car where they have to breathe into it before mm-hmm. they drive yeah mm-hmm. wow so yeah so I think it's just essentially I wouldn't use the word natural but it's a uh, it's I guess an expected extension of that technology that that would work its way into a mental health monitoring, uh, you know, activity monitoring, and then reporting that back to the insurance companies. Yeah, there's all kinds of health apps. There's something called Spire, where you can clip this little device onto your belt or the or your bra, and it can detect when you're becoming stressed or if you're calm and focused, and it'll monitor your breathing. That's how it comes up with this uh with its response, and they send the data to the smartphone, and when the smart or when the Spire little device uh, detects that you're stressed out, it'll make your phone vibrate, or it'll send you an instant message telling you to chill out. <laughs> yeah, because that's not stressful. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> you stress, calm down. Oh my god! <laughs> and then your phone starts ringing off the hook, <laughs> causing more stress. <laughs> Oh, man. There's another the, one, too, called yeah. uh, the Wise Mirror. Yeah. Did you guys hear about yeah. this one? That's basically like a mirror, and you kind of stare into the mirror in the, in, in the morning or whenever. And um, it incorporates, like, 3D scanners and multispectral cameras and uh, gas sensors <laughs> to, his health, uh, to assess the health of a person. So it'll, yes, it'll examine your face and look at fatty tissue, facial expressions, and how flushed or pale they are. <laughs> telltale markers of stress or anxiety while gas sensors take samples of the user's breath for compounds that give an indication of how much they drink or smoke who would want that <laughs> you will be surprised yeah it just reminds yeah. me of that movie Idiocracy where the guy goes to the, the hospital because he's not feeling well and they have all these little sensor things that they plug into various holes <laughs> and it can tell you what's wrong with you. That's what we're getting to. Yes, seriously. Yeah, there is a class. Well, it's like hot. Uh, I was just gonna say, it's like the hot comment says here. It's like if you really want to know how much you drank or smoked, count the empty bottles or cigarette butts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and there, there are actually some people like. I know of a few people who would probably be really excited at this kind of idea, thinking this was like a really cool thing, and you know, this is 
progress and everything like that. But to me, it kind of just demonstrates how far removed we are from just ordinary human existence. You know, just being able to tell, like, what you did that day, <laughs> I went to the shop. You know, do you have something telling you what you, what you did the day because you won't remember? You know, how you feel, you can't just tell whether you're tired. You can't tell whether you're upset or angry or sad or, or whatever. You know, it's just like people are almost asking to just be told and led in every aspect of their lives um, and to, mm-hmm. to essentially have their autonomy completely taken away from them almost. Uh, it's, it's, it's awfully mm-hmm. strange to see. Um, well, there are a bunch of these high-tech biohackers who would like to upload their consciousness into the net or like they experiment with these little microchip implants. Like there was something, I forgot what it was called, but it took place over in some Swedish country and they have these microchips implanted into their hands and the, like the soft little area between your thumb and your fourth pointer finger. And all it did was allow them to get into the office building. Like open, <laughs> opening a door, scanning a badge is so difficult. I need to have a you know a surgical procedure to implant this chip so the door will buzz and let me open. <laughs> let me open it. It's making sure it's like a safety for if you forget your keys. Mm. It's like I never have to worry about forgetting my keys ever again because it was such such a problem. I guess people have become be so lazy they don't want to have to worry about anything. <laughs> kind of like what you're saying, Elliot. They don't. Yeah. They're content in having everything done for them. Like, they even have something called smart clothes now. They call them biotechs, like biotextiles, where it can analyze your heart rate, your body temperature, and it can even analyze bits of your bodily fluids like sweat. And uh, it can contact your doctor if it senses something is awry. But this is just clothing that you wear that has this nanotechnology in it. So it automatically sheds when you get too hot. <laughs> that would be cool, actually. If there was clothing that would change temperature for you, I think that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> but I think like regarding our topic of effort. Sorry. Yeah, Jeff. exactly. Well, Elliot, the, the point that you made was really good, I think, and that's uh, kind of drawing from that. <clears throat> excuse me. That uh, this is disconnecting us from our bodies and from our natural environment, you know, as we continue to receive more feedback from technology, we begin to rely on that. Uh, and <clears throat> we will, over time, if we haven't already, uh, lose uh, any um, physical, you know, biological intuition that we have mm-hmm. about uh, how we're feeling uh, mentally, physically, uh, what we need to do uh, to resolve that. Um, most people have those mechanisms in place, whether they realize it or not, and they kind of like you know, thinking about like when the body says no and, and those kind of, that kind of research, uh, how to listen to their body, uh, even if they're not, you know, an active like student of that topic, that innate understanding exists. But I can't help but wonder if over time this will actually be sort of weeded out uh, to the point where now we are going, I, well, I think we do already have uh, children who are growing up relying on this technology mm-hmm. who may never even develop those senses. You know, and that's that's the scary thought, I think, going into the future is, you know, are we going to breed a generation uh, which is completely and utterly disconnected from any, like, biophysical feedback that they have, uh, that they should have, uh, that they never used? Yeah, I think that can definitely happen. Just look at how fast 
uh, the time span was between people getting cell phones and nobody knowing anybody's phone number anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no idea. Yeah. Like, and I remember a couple of phone numbers, but I used to have all these phone numbers in my head. Now, nobody knows anybody's <laughs> phone number anymore. And if you have a question, you can't just sit there and think and try and figure it out immediately. You just Google it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm surprised sometimes people, they don't know where they work. I mean, they know, but they don't know where they were the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, basic stuff, really. Or how to read a map anymore and navigate by getting lost, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, your phone tells you where you are and how to get there, and there's no sort of observation of your environment. You're listening to... That voice telling you turn right, turn left, and then you're at your destination, but you have no idea how you got there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. Well, a, I, I was, one thing I was going to mention earlier, I mean, talking about where this is coming from, there's a class of, uh, of technologists, I guess you would call them researchers, um, computer scientists, uh, you know, computer scientists slash philosophers who are shaping uh, the direction of the industry who to them, it's a positive thing. Like I think Elliot, you had mentioned earlier, they think of it as progress, you know, it's something very cool. And so we are <clears throat> utilizing our understanding and, uh, uh, and development of technology in order to make our lives better. Uh, I personally completely disagree. Uh, I'm not a total Luddite, but I, I, I do think that we're taking this a little too far, but I remember seeing a lecture from, uh, this guy named Ray Kurzweil. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's a futurist inventor. He's invented a bunch of technology like optical character recognition and stuff like that. And um, I went and saw one of his lectures once, and he out and out said with no equivocation that he wants his communication devices implanted in his in his brain. Mm-hmm. He's like, I want these wired directly into the, the synaptic tissue so that I don't have any seams between uh, you know, my thoughts in the digital world and I can interact back and forth seamlessly. Um, to him, that's, that's progress. Uh, mm. you know, to me, that sounds awful. Did you uh, say his name was Kurzweil? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Ray Kurzweil. Um, you know, he's obviously a very intelligent man, uh, inc- incredibly brilliant, uh, computer scientist, but, uh, I think that it, it's like, there's a disconnect between our fascination with technology and like, holy cow, it can do all these things. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, like I was saying earlier, our, our innate connection with our bodies and being able to understand things in our environment. I mean, even if you look at uh, IBM has this new thing, uh, Watson, which is like essentially AI. I don't know if it's conscious or not. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually <laughs> conscious yet. Uh, but the, they're, you know, they're beginning now to utilize that for uh, predictions uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that they can predict your uh, health patterns and then say that you, you know, within one year are going to develop high blood pressure. So you need to address it now, stuff like that. Um, so predictive technologies are working their way in. Uh, you know, how long is it going to be uh, before we are completely wired into the system? Um and we don't understand ourselves. So now I'm repeating myself. That was the point I was making earlier, but yeah, it's, uh, Mm. it's frustrating. I don't think we should go back to the dark ages, but I didn't think we should like back up just a little bit, you know, Mm. like (laughs) there needs to be some balance here. Well, you can kind of see where it's all going too. Um, we had in our show description about the CDC 
and how they're going to, uh, just in August, they took new steps to uh, monitor and basically look to quarantine people for illness or what they call, what was it, communicable disease? Quarantinable communicable diseases such as Ebola or any other of the, the viruses hype of the moment. And what's... Yeah, I almost forgot about that one. Well, apparently they tried to they tried to do it back in two thousand and five, and they proposed like having medical databases with airlines and whatnot. And the airline industry, back to the airline industry, was really up in arms about it, so they kind of scrapped it and shelved it. And now in two thousand fourteen, or I'm sorry, in uh, last year, August, they brought it up again, and it's much more vague as far as what what's considered a communicable disease or the list is um, vague to say the least and people are not yeah. protesting as much well, I don't think a lot of people well, even actually, know about it well no they only gave um, a two month um, I don't know if you could well, like a discussion period or whatever like they kind mm-hmm. of put it out and then they said, okay, you have two months to comment on this, and then we're closing it down, which is, like, really short compared to what they normally would do. Mm-hmm. And um, they uh, and, and so, like, yeah, a lot of people didn't know about it. And a lot of, like, actual, you know, medical professionals and, and people who, um, you know, policymakers and those sorts of things, like people who actually should be reading it and commenting on it, didn't have the opportunity because it was, it was kind of put out there and then taken down so quickly. So that was... Uh, a disturbing aspect of it. Yeah, they're think they're s- responding that it's like a threat to your civil liberties, right? Because mm-hmm. they can, uh, mm-hmm. authorities can detain you and examine you without due process or informed consent. And you know, you think about these apps on these phones, so <laughs> they've got all your data, <laughs> and they can hold you uh, for at what did say three days? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they don't have to provide you with legal counsel either. So basically you're at the mercy of the CDC or whoever they appoint to be your health authority, whether it just be somebody at the bus station or a TSA worker at the airport, they are allowed to make decisions regarding your fitfulness to travel or not or whether you're healthy. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and then it, it turns out that certain states have already started using these sort of draconian laws. And uh, once you're in quarantine, they can, you know, potentially drug you mm-hmm. with the regime or even vaccinations. And just, mm-hmm. for example, like in the state of New York, uh, they can detain patients and lock them in Bellevue Hospital. Mm. Or in Alabama, the governor um, or the Board of Health can proclaim a quarantine whenever it's deemed necessary. Mm. And uh, they have the full power of enforcement and can formulate any rules it believes it needs to implement. Mm -hmm. So this all makes me wonder, what is it that the CDC knows that some of us might not know? What are they preparing for? Because every year it seems like they have these virus scares. They have Zika, they have Ebola, they have SARS, the bird flu, the swine flu, this, that, and the other flu. 
and they create a big hubbub, get a bunch of people all scared and worked up, and then it kind of just dies away, and then we just wait for the next one to come in. So what is the next one that's going to come in? And with this next one, is the CDC going to start really implementing these quarantinable uh, offenses? Exactly. Or maybe, or maybe they don't know. They don't have any idea of what's going on, or what mm-hmm. you know. They're just control freaks, you know, power hungry control freaks. They want to control everything. And especially recently, in the last few years, that a, a lot of papers have been published, whether they like it or not, which shows that their science is really shaky and corrupted and just looks for corporate interests, you know. And, uh, for example, it will be interesting to see now what happens now that Robert Kennedy Jr. has been appointment, uh, appointed by Trump as a chair to commission investigate vaccine safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit, because the uh, some Kennedy's work is uh, pretty interesting. Um, so basically, he launched a new uh, project, a nonprofit called the World Mercury Project, um, with two other vaccine safety advocates, uh, and they've been uh, confronting. Uh, the CDC over their, uh, you know, cover-up of research around uh, Verstraten, um and uh, the mercury content in vaccines and their link to autism. Um, so I'm curious to see how this will go. But this is another thing I think that's like, it's so hard to talk about. I mean, I don't know if you've tried lately to talk to anybody about vaccines and, and autism, but it's it's right up there with like every other kind of tinfoil hat-ish subject mm-hmm. um and now there's this really convenient well there's the the fake news buzzword which has been going around and so I mean, somebody can immediately just point at you and say fake news and then, <laughs> and then you're discredited but also i find interesting the word uh denier it seems to be used a lot more yeah. so you're either mm-hmm. cli- you're a climate change denier or you're a you're a vaccine denier you know and if you deny you know the status quo then that's that's a negative label on your uh on your character. Well, it's interesting too, because he's not anti-vaccine. Right. And he's publicly said that he's pro-science and he's like what, 30 year lawyer, environmental lawyer. And, uh, he wants transparency, transparency Mm -hmm. and honesty. And he says that the true science is never settled. It continues to ask questions and one point that he made that was really good is if vaccines are safe and effective, why did the su- Supreme Court ruling in 2011 say that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe? <laughs> he also said, yeah, how, how safe are they when the vaccine court has paid out over $3 billion, with a B, since 1989? <laughs> So it's interesting that he would be chosen to form a commission that's actually going to ask the questions that most people just brush, brush aside. Mm-hmm. I'm still skeptical. I mean, because even if you were able to release this solid, you know, uh, research, which has has actually already been released, but yeah. the the when you consider the 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 sort of I guess metaphorical steering wheel of public opinion. Um, uh, people's opinions are, are locked in now. They're, they're believing, you know, uh, wholeheartedly, um, 
the story that comes from the established authority. Um, the authoritarian follower mindset is firmly in place. And like, I don't know if that could even be uh, turned around, you know, at this point. So now let's say if they come out with like valid, you know, wide, widespread research that this, that this is uh, dangerous, which like I said, it already exists, but let's say it actually, it's out into like the mainstream, like CNN, you know, type news networks. I mean, I'm skeptical that people would even believe it at that point. Mm. What I find interesting is that Robert Kennedy, you know, he does a very good job portraying the personalities of the mainstream, the status quo, like uh, yeah. Offit, Dr. Offit, Paul Offit, you know, he's like, you know, he relates experiences that he had, you know, through um, during interviews that he had with Paul Offit, with the guy, it's like total, like, you know, pathological behavior to the highest, you know, he lies mm -hmm. deliberately, you know, and he has proof, you know, and then that's just one example. And there's other examples of how the CDC has had made meetings at closed doors and they found out that they were being recorded and they just freaked out completely about it. They just, it just show how like completely hysterical and pathological these people are that, I mean, I think, I hope at some point authoritarian followers will just be ashamed to, you know, to, <laughs> to have all of this, like, <laughs> showing their face, you know. Well, what he's doing is he's basically forcing the debate in the press, you know, so he's, he's encouraging reporters to actually look at the science and realize they've been lied and bamboozled by the CDC. I mean, I know that's a, it's a reach, but. Well, he's going up against a behemoth. I mean, it's not just the CDC, but it's the pharmaceutical agencies and the the the, the press, or all the like Rupert Murdoch's of the world, the one who own like the six major broadcast corporations who get all this money from advertising from big pharma. And I don't know what will he be able to do. Will he just be spinning his wheels? I mean, the people who are anti-vaccine and you know don't want to vaccinate their children, believe in the link between thimerosal and autism. I think those people are, they've made their decision, but as far as everybody else, I don't know what else can be done. It just seems like it's so big, the world would have to end basically <laughs> for anybody to well, you know, get from underneath this. I, mean, I don't know what can be done. Not to say that he shouldn't do anything. Trump has actually... Yeah. Trump has actually appointed this council. I mean, mm -hmm. he's the president of the United States. I mean, you know, you can argue how much power they actually have. But the fact that um, that he is kind of interested in this and knows enough about it to get um, Robert Kennedy Jr. to to be kind of heading the, the council, I mean, that says a lot. So I don't know. I mean, it, what, what you might have is uh, some major conflict between the press and their old sort of line about um, vaccines being always safe and always effective. Um, and then you'd have the president saying, well, no, I had this uh, council look at this and we've discovered that that's not the case. I mean, I don't know what'll happen then. Mm -hmm. It's going to Yeah. It, Doug, I think we might've lost you there for a second, but it, it will be interesting to see where it goes. I feel like we're <clears throat> approaching, um, this year a sort of uh psychological civil war of of sorts mm -hmm. if that makes mm -hmm. any sense you know where it's like so you have people who are extreme authoritarian followers who whatever 
this, you know, whatever the authority says is true, whether it be science, uh, politics, you know, uh, uh, foreign relations, all that kind of stuff, that's just true. So I, I don't need to look into it because they told me in their trusted source. Then you have the extreme opposite <clears throat> of that who doesn't believe anything no matter what. And then you have, I think, the majority of people who are kind of in the middle who are like, okay, well, no, I'll believe an expert if they tell me something because I'm not an expert in that. But, you know, but let me, like, understand it. And if am I allowed to, like, you know, question the authority or say, like, this doesn't make sense or, look, I see all these people getting sick. Shouldn't we figure out why? So they, they, the people in the middle are basically going to, and I think this is happening even now, are, are being given kind of a, if you're not with us, you're against us, ultimatum by both sides mm-hmm. of this of this argument. So if you don't wholeheartedly believe the authority or wholeheartedly not believe anything at all, then you're, you're, you know, you're not on one side or the other and you need to pick a side. Uh, and that's kind of how it's felt to me for, for a good, like, couple of years now where it's, it's more and more, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, vaccines, whether you're talking about what's happening, you know, uh, overseas and what's reported in the media, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, social views internally within the United States or Europe or anywhere else, it's like the, the viewpoints are so extreme that I think people are just short of beating the crap out of each other when they have mm. arguments on these topics and that that, you know. Well, know it's, it seems like reasons. it's just a war on reality or a war on truth and yeah. the sides, people are picking their sides, it seems like more like more. Like it's coming up more, like in the uh, the last couple of years, but most recently, like with this social justice warrior thing and the whole election, it for me at least has gotten a lot stronger, and it just seems like it's a battle for people who stand for truth and people who are willing to accept a lie. Yeah. Well. I think that's a great note. On uh, we are uh, a little bit short on our time uh, today. We don't want to go too long today, so let's. Uh, Why we don't we want to go too long today? <laughs> are we all waiting to get trumped? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have a pet health segment from Zoya today, which uh, which. Uh, should prove to be very interesting. It's about the ketogenic diet for dogs. Uh, and I'm very interested to hear this um, uh, because I have a dog who has some health issues and I'm sure a lot of people do. So let's check this out. And then when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the show. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show. This week, I would like to share with you something I heard from one of my colleagues, who is a neurologist and orthopedic surgeon. First, it's important to mention that just like with human medicine, veterinary science is also rather divided when it comes to alternative or more natural approaches to pet treatment uh, via small mainstream ones. Among the doctors who take the mainstream road, there is even a phrase, evidence-based medicine, that is supposed to show that they support only treatments and drugs that are based on scientific research that is published in well-known and popular scientific magazines, and that the rest of the solutions are nothing more than quackery and fraud. Well, 
There's a lot to say about such an approach and the kind of people who uh, vehemently oppose to anything that isn't published in prestigious magazines. But it isn't the main topic of this segment. The reason I mention it at all is because my colleague is one of those evidence uh, evidence-based medicine supporters, and that's why what he said makes it even more interesting. During our conversation, we talked about incidents of epilepsy in dogs and how often they have to be on specific drugs all their lives in order to prevent occurrence of seizures. But then this colleague mentioned that there is a good and proven method that has the same effect, and it is a ketogenic diet for dogs. Imagine my surprise. Apparently, there is plenty of mainstream evidence in veterinary science that just like with humans shows clear benefits for dogs who have epilepsy. And the interesting part about it, that it isn't something revolutionary or groundbreaking, really. In order to solve the problem, owners of those dogs are advised to feed them with a diet that the nature intended for dogs anyway. Because, after all, neither dogs or cats are supposed to eat so much carbohydrates. But still, it is nice to know that there is room for natural approaches in mainstream veterinary science, too. More so... There is good research that, just like with humans, shows clear benefit of ketogenic diet in treating cancer in dogs. Here is a segment from the video titled Keto-Human Study, Effects of Ketogenic Diet uh, in Canine Cancer, where Dr. Sledge, a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who has been practicing uh, adult reconstructive and spinal surgery for 25 years, talks about a special project called Ketopet, where they created a sanctuary for dogs who have cancer and where they try to develop effective treatments and approaches that may have implications for humans too. Here's the recording. I got a strange phone call about two years ago. What do you know about Warburg and the ketogenic diet? And dogs. So um, what they've done is they've had a lot of conversations with um, Ron D'Agostino, um, I got a bunch of books from Amazon delivered to my house. And um, the following week, I got another interesting phone call. I want to do this in humans. So he said, but before I do it in the humans, we've got to test it in the dogs first. He says, I need a hospital. I need people. And we've got to get this up and running. So what he was able to do was get a bunch of people together to say, this is a great idea. Build a veterinary hospital in Austin and get rights to a CT PET scanner for animals, and that was done in 60 days. Um, so at that point, we scrambled to catch up, and then we had the great opportunity to say, you've got somewhat unlimited resources to do everything you possibly can to cure cancer in a dog. Now, they chose the dogs because um, we had fairly strong stipulations from the pennas. One is you have to do naturally occurring cancers because we don't want to cause more cancer. We want to get rid of it. Two is you need a good surrogate outcome measure to make sure that what you're actually doing is going to be effective and we can measure that effect. Fortunately, with dogs with a very high naturally occurring cancer rate, if we took dogs that had a terminal diagnosis, so dogs that are supposed to be dead within four to six months, if we can keep them alive longer than four to six months, then we can show efficacy of whatever we're doing. And we had no restrictions on the treatment. Diet had to be the foundation, but if something else looked like it was supposed to be effective, we were allowed to use that. This ran into some very interesting things. So, started with the ketogenic diet. 
hyperbaric oxygen, metabolic conditioning program, the exercise component ended up being incredibly important. This is all very well documented because we want to take what we learned from the dogs and then be able to translate that to humans. So very quickly, we were able to take benchtop research, translate it into a large animal model in preparation for translating it into a human clinical trial. Uh, it also ran into some fairly interesting situations. Vets aren't used to doing this. So we're treating the dogs as if they're humans. I'm a physician, I usually take care of people, so we treated them as if they were people. And uh, there's a great story, I, ho I hope Daniel's around here somewhere. He's with a dog in a veterinarian's office in Austin. And the vet gives him some advice. And Daniel turns to him and says, I want you to think about that advice carefully. If this dog were the President of the United States, what would you recommend? He says, well, if the dog were the President, I'd fly him down to Houston to see this oncology specialist who's down there to get his opinion. Daniel said, thank you very much. Can you give me his address? <laughs> Drove the dog to Houston, got the event, and dog ended up having surgery as we were able to use that as adjunct care as we improved the dog's care. So these did not get your normal veterinarian care. This is human care for animals. So acceptance criteria. We had to have histology. We needed to know what tumors we were treating. They had to have positive PET scans so we could follow it with a surrogate marker. They had to also have a 12-week expect life expectancy because we wanted to get them at least through that portion of the study to try to determine their efficacy. It turned out that the dogs that we've enrolled in the study all meet these criteria. We did, however, for humanitarian reasons, take some dogs that we knew were not going to meet this criteria, and we had dogs pass away within the first week or two of us um, obtaining them, but it was really hard to turn down uh, offers to be able to take care of these dogs when that opportunity arose. The intervention of the diet, it's a raw food diet, four to one ratio. Um, we started 70-30 beef, MCT powder. Uh, we cycled the fats in it between creams, butter, and other fats. We realized we need to with the dogs, as Ron mentioned earlier, you have to cycle the food or the dogs get tired of it. This was a lesson we carried over to the humans. You have to cycle human food or they're gonna get very tired of it. We also learned as we moved through the diet that we had to add things back in that we hadn't thought about. We had to add in the fiber. We had to add in the minerals. We had to add in the vitamins. We had to get back into the prebiotics and the probiotics. So the combination of the three phases sort of work on the gut with the prebiotic, probiotic fibers, work with the diet, and work with the metabolic conditioning, adjunct therapy for the HPOT, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery when it was, um, when it was appropriate. You have to also realize that most of these dogs came to us at the end of care. The vast majority had already had surgery and had already had adjunct therapy tried. Um, so it was either, you know, this dog has 30, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days to live, um, or they can come down and spend time with us at the shelter. Hyperbaric oxygen, um, this is a very aggressive regimen. Um, this is incredibly time intensive. So it's a 60 minute time in the chamber, so it's almost about two hours for the dog um, because there's the pre-chamber, post-chamber time, three days on, one day off, two days on, one day off for the entire 120-day cycle. So it's a very aggressive HBOT uh, protocol um, morphed out of what was done in uh, Dom D'Agostino's lab uh, with Angela. So outcome measures. We looked at two types, daily outcome measures for compliance with the diet. The dogs were measured with an um, activity scale every day, body habit scale every day, fat assessment every day, muscle uh, lean mass, 
PET scans 60 to 120, ultrasounds 30 and 60, in case we're missing something with the PET scans. So we're assessing them on a daily basis and on an incremental basis as they move through the program. Um, the body score was important to us in terms of their diet. The diet got manipulated on a regular basis based upon how much the dog weighed, what its activity was, how sick it was, what its lean mass looked like as we played with the macronutrients to try to um, keep a stable weight within the dogs. Um, the calories varied, uh, I think there's a slide later, between 11 and 39. So uh, I agree with comments earlier, calorie restriction is an unusual comment. We're basically looking at uh, ideal body mass, lean body mass for the dogs. Uh, careful accounting of the adverse events, because once again, for us, this is a precursor trial moving into uh, human clinical trials. So what we wanted to show today really is based on the first 15 dogs that have completed a 120-day cycle that are now out at least six to eight weeks beyond that 120 days to see if there are any complications once we stop the HBOT um, and they're continuing on a regular two-to-one ketogenic diet. So this one slide sort of surmises the entire talk and the importance of the information we gathered from it. 15 dogs completed at 170 to 300 and 400 days. You can see we have 12 dogs still alive. Based upon the life expectancy of the tumors that they had, we should have zero survivorship. So we've got 12 out of 15. We did have three dogs pass away. Two died of angiosarcoma who died of the cancer, of the disease, metastatic complications from the disease. The one dog with mast cell actually died of um, a systemic uh, infection. He had a rapid tumor kill, ended up with central necrosis of his tumor, uh, developed a secondary infection, and died of the sepsis. So at the completion of it, we have five that are PET scan, CT scan negative, which means we cannot detect tumor within the animal. We have two um, that are in remission. This is because of hematological tumors. And we have five that have stable cancer, which means um, their cancer is not growing and has shrunk um, and are still running around leading healthy lives without progression of the tumor, though we can still find uh, residual on CT PET scanning. Glucose and ketones, our target range, what we're actually able to determine. It shows that with the dogs, we could get pretty close to the glucose measurement, but we had a hard time with the ketones. Really difficult to get a dog's ketones up. Um, you'll see data later. This is sort of the reverse of what we found in the humans, where it's much easier to drive their ketones up and much harder to drive their glucose down. Um, weight loss was not a predictor of outcome. So there's a lot of talk about uh, calorie-restricted, non-calorie-restricted, 30% reduction, 20% reduction. What we did is the dogs that came in skinny, we tried to get on optimal body weight with dietary manipulation. The dogs that came in heavy, we limited or manipulated the macronutrients to try to get them to an ideal body weight. But once the animals reached those, we tried to keep all animals as close as we could to their ideal body weights. Um, but the bottom line is we couldn't find a difference um, in terms of weight loss or calories based upon the markers that we were following. The issues that we had, um, fatty livers. We found that once we started to cycle the fat sources, um, we didn't have nearly the problem with fatty livers. It's still something we're concerned about and we continue to watch. The initial body mass, because we started with a um, fast, uh, and it turns out that with the fast, not only are they losing the fat that we want them to lose, they're also losing too much lean body mass. On the four to one diet, before we were pulse dosing them with uh, protein. We also had more lean body mass than we, were, uh, than we wanted. We had GI issues um, that we helped solve and ameliorate with the fiber and the prebiotics and probiotics. Coprophagia early on was a problem 
uh, with dogs because they weren't getting enough fiber and they weren't getting enough minerals and this is a place for them to find them. Uh, we did not have that problem in the human study. Um, and <laughs> the comorbid factors, um, these dogs came in very sick. So uh, a lot of them had heartworm, most of them had comorbid uh, metabolic diseases that we had to manage either along with uh, the management of the cancer or in some of the dogs that took precedence in their survivorship. Um, but the curiosity was that with all these comorbid factors, at first we were thought it was going to be a complication to the study, uh, but what it did is it gave us great insight as we transitioned this to the human study in terms of what the ketogenic does to the metabolic diseases, uh, and I'll let more be said about that in the follow-up. So in conclusion, it's got profound effect um, on cancer survivorship. So we should have had a 100% fatality rate, uh, and we still have 12 dogs alive uh, t two months after the completion of the 120-day protocol, it's difficult to achieve. This was a high-touch process with the animals. Um, there is a tremendous amount of involvement of the people at the Keto Pet Sanctuary to manage and maintain these dogs. Uh, implication for humans, one is the tolerability. Can we get humans to follow a ketogenic diet? Is it sustainable? Once they try it, will they continue to take it uh, as long as is needed? The dogs were 120 days. And how to avoid the unintended consequences, particularly of the protein malnutrition and the fatty liver. All right. Thank you, Zoe. That was very interesting. I think there's some, uh, some things that are worth trying out there, especially if you have a dog who has uh, cancer. So uh, definitely something worth looking into. Um, we are going to, uh, to wrap it up for today. Um, so without further ado, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, thanks to our chat participants. I know we had a bit of a shorter day, a shorter show today, but we will come back with more material in the future. And uh, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Uh, be sure to tune into the other SOT radio show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>